0: Why do you live where you live? Why do you live in an apartment or a house? Why instead not live in a tent, for example? No, I get it. It's really hot these days. However, the average housing price, the cheapest house you can get these days in this area is around $300,000. And you can get a pretty amazing tent for 500 bucks. I mean, I don't know if you've been to REI these days, but it's pretty amazing what you can get for $500. Why not just sweat it out each summer to save $299,000? Why a house instead of a tent? Because a house offers you something that a tent never could. What is that? Though mediums like Instagram and Pinterest tempt us to believe our houses are hobbies and investments. At their most basic level, they offer us safety. A house provides shelter. We are happy to pay for an expensive home because it protects us from the elements and the evils of this world. It doesn't matter the season or storm, a home is a refuge. Though it would Be much cheaper where we will pick a house every day because it offers us what no other shelter can. What about with God? What does God offer you? What can you find in Him that you can't find in the world? What does He provide that the world doesn't provide? What does he provide that the positions and the powers of this age cannot grant you or give you? When you think of it on the surface, it seems like it's much more costly of a thing to find refuge in God than refuge in the world. The world offers security and prosperity for all who are willing to seek refuge in it. The world says, follow me, and you get to follow your heart. If we look at it, it seems like the rich and the famous, they are abiding by the rules and regu- regulations of the world, and their lives look easy and amazing. So why not run to the world and find shelter in it? It seems far less costly and painful than following God. So why choose God over the world? Because God offers us something the world never could. Comparing God and The world is like comparing a tent and the Taj Mahal. There is no comparison at all. What does God offer the world? What does God offer us that the world could not? That's something we have seen throughout our time in the Psalms, and we'll see it most emphatically today in Psalm 91. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and grab them and turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Follow along with me as I read now. This is the word of the Lord through the psalmist. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Throughout this summer, we have been walking through the book of the Psalms. There are 150 psalms broken down over five books. Uh, by doing this, we're getting a glimpse of all of Israel's history. We're seeing how the people of God talked about God, sang to God, and prayed to God through great tragedy, triumph, and trials. Uh, through the psalms, we have seen throughout what God has been for His people and what He offers to those who come to Him regardless of their circumstances. And Psalm 91 might be the clearest and most energetic answer to the question of what and who is God for His people. So today, we're going to answer the question, what is God for His people? What is God for His people? What does He offer to those who turn from the counsel of the world to the counsel of His Word? From this passage, we're going to see that God is three things for His people. Are you ready? Number one, God is a shelter. Verses one through two. Number two, he's a deliverer. Verses three through 13. And number three, he is salvation. Verses 14 through 16. Number one, he's a shelter. Number two, he is a deliverer. And number three, he is salvation. Let's look at point one now. God is a shelter for his people. Psalm 91 is the second book or excuse me, second psalm in book four of the Psalter. The book starts with Psalm 90, which Moses declares that from everlasting to everlasting, he is their God, but ultimately that he has been their dwelling place in all generations. If you'll notice at the very beginning here in Psalm 91, it starts in a similar note. The psalmist says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Because of this, it's probably why these two psalms have been placed together in the Psalter. We don't know who wrote the psalm, but they are striking the same theme as Moses wrote in Psalm 90, that God is a shelter and refuge, abode, a dwelling place. He is a safe place to run and hide. The psalmist says that those who take shelter in God will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. If you've read the passage earlier this week, you'll notice that in the first few verses, the psalmist uses four divine names to describe God. First few verses, he, said, he calls, him, calls God the Most High, the Almighty, Yahweh, and my God. What is the psalmist doing here? He is saying, There is no more high, no stronger, no more faithful, no more personal shelter than God. God is an all encompassing, all secure fortress. The one who made all things and who needs nothing and no one, who declared the end from the beginning, who sets up kings and removes them, is a safe and secure place for all who come and find refuge in Him. That's what the psalmist is saying. He says that those who seek shelter in God will abide in His shadow. What does that mean? Shadow is an interesting imagery that He uses. So, for example, uh, this summer with it being so hot, when our families go out on a walk or out playing in the backyard. Uh, when my kids aren't wearing sunscreen, in particular our youngest, Mariah, I will walk in such a way that my shadow shields her so she doesn't get sunburned. Anyway she goes, I try to cover her so that my shadow covers her so that she's safe and secure from the sun. But here's the problem. She's a fast little booger. <laughs> and sometimes she gets out of my shadow and moves too quickly. My shadow simply isn't big enough. Imagine if God had a shadow like us. How big would it be? Where would it start and where would it end? you think you could ever move move too quickly outside of its coverage? Brothers and sisters, if God had a shadow like ours, it would not simply cover you or your house or our city or the state of, of Texas. No, not even the earth or all the galaxies in our universe could find its fringes. Not even eternity itself finds its end. There is safety and security in the shadow of God. That's what the psalmist is saying. That when you dwell in God, when you abide in Him, there is no vulnerabilities. There is no weaknesses with the shelter that is God. He's saying this. He's saying, come and abide in Him. Come and find refuge in Him. And notice you'll, you'll look at verse, if you look at verse 2, you'll see that he doesn't just declare this, that we should be doing it. He starts in verse 2 to share his own experience. He says here in verse 2, basically, look, I'm not saying this to you because I learned it in books. I've learned it in my own life, that God is a shelter for all who come to him. This has been my own experience. I've seen it and known it firsthand in my life. Church, how have you experienced the goodness and protection of God? How have you seen his faithfulness in your life? How have you seen him to be a shelter in your life? And when is the last time you just sat with another Christian and just simply said, let me tell you how God has been faithful to his promises. Let me tell you how he has been a refuge and a fortress for me. If you want to encourage me or the members of this church, simply sit down and say, here is what God has done for me. We are missing so many blessings by only sharing what we are asking of God and never sharing what God has already done for us. How fun would it be if we could all go around today and hear testimony after testimony of God's grace in each other's lives. Hear how God has worked among us. Church, that's why we pray the way we do. and That's why we sing the way that we do. That's why we sing, He's done so much for me earlier. It's a fun song to sing, but it's a true song to sing. He has truly done so much for us. We do this because some of us are going through hardships and trials. Because these moments we are facing oftentimes eclipse our view of God. And we need to be reminded to to lift our gaze and to look back and to see all that God has done for us. To be reminded of his being a refuge for us. This is the very reason why we send out testimonies in advance before our members' meetings. It's one of the very reasons, because we want you to be encouraged by the evidence of God's grace in each people's lives. We want you to see it and rejoice that God has not ceased to be a shelter, that He's faithful to His promises. I mean, we all today are declarations that God has not ceased to be God today, that He's still a shelter and a refuge for His people. We are all living Ebenezers declaring to one another to remain faithful, for God is faithful. Each member of TRBC is a declaration of the goodness and faithfulness of God. Oh, I pray that we never become numb to the goodness of God. That we never stop sharing how much He has done for us. That's what the psalmist does here. He's saying, I'm going to instruct you to do this because I've experienced it myself. Because I've seen the goodness of God and how He's faithful to His promises. What is God for His people? Well, He is a a shelter. He's a safe place to run and hide. A place where we can find security and comfort from deliverance and hardships of this life. And some psalmist then transitions. He says we not only can dwell safely in the shadow of the Almighty because He is our deliverer. That's my point too. God is our deliverer verses 3 through 13. Here in verses 3 through 13, the, expo, the, excuse me, the psalmist expounds upon what it means for God to be our refuge and what he is like for all those who abide in the shelter of the Almighty. There are several different images that he uses to help us understand the comprehensive care that God provides for all of his people. It's like he just keeps turning the diamond that is God to say, look at God. Look at what he is for us. Look at what he's done for us basically at the heart of three through 13 he's saying here is what it means that god is a shelter it means that he delivers you from evil from danger from pestilence and plague we see that god delivers his people in two ways in this section first he delivers them by protecting them this is verses three through eight and next he delivers them by providing so protecting and providing it's alliterated because i'm a baptist First, let's look at protecting. This is verses 3 through 8. Let's reread that now. So the psalmist says, or he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So starting in verse three, we'll notice there is a little bit of a transition in pronoun. If you notice this, and this is kind of how kind of gives the justification for why I've broken down the text the way I have, if you look in verse uh, 2 and 1, he says that, Lord, uh, you have been our, no, excuse me, I'm let's wrong pass Psalm 90, uh, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Well, then in verse 3, he transitions, he says, for he will dwell with, he will deliver you. So he, first he talks about himself, I will say to the Lord, in verse 2, and then in verse 3, he says he will deliver you. This is 3 through 13, he's kind of, kind of instructing us today. And then in verse 14, we see another transition, because he hold fast to me. This is God speaking up here. Here in verse 3, if you go back, the psalmist states that God will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. What does that mean? Well, a fowler is someone who hunts fowl or birds, someone who's crafty. Uh, They hide, they camouflage themselves so that the prey cannot see them. He's speaking metaphorically, saying that God even protects you from the evil schemes of the wicked that you cannot see. Then he goes on to say that he will deliver you from pestilence, meaning it doesn't matter what you can see, and it doesn't matter what you cannot see, God will protect you from it all. That's what the psalmist is saying. How does he do it? We see it in verse 4. He says, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Refuge. The psalmist says that God delivers his people through covering them. It's the imagery he uses is almost like a mother bird protecting its young from danger. So it means that God's care of us is tender and affectionate. But also he uses another imagery. If you notice another image of God's care, he says his faithfulness is a shield and buckler, meaning that though God's care is tender, it is enduring and impenetrable. So the image of shield is like a a wall that protects a city. And buckler is what a a soldier would have had in battle, a a shield on his arm. So he's saying that there's nothing that can get by, that God cannot be outrunned or outmanned or outmaneuvered. There is no vulnerability in God's defense system. It can move and protect his people from any danger and any trial in life. What's amazing to me as I studied this passage this week is the pains that God goes to, to communicate with us about himself. And he does this for our comfort. Here's what I mean. God could have simply said, I am God, you must follow me in the world. Do not turn from me, turn to me and live. That would have been true and good enough. But God goes further than that. God uses images and relationships that we can understand to help us as we journey towards heaven. I mean, throughout the Bible, God speaks of himself as a shelter, as a mother, as a nursing mother, as a husband, as a shepherd, as having wings and having everlasting arms. Why does God speak in such a way? Because he is saying today, you can trust him. He is saying that he is good and compassionate and loving for all those who turn to him. He's saying he's trustworthy. He's going to the nth degree to say, I promise I'm trustworthy and I'm safe. So come to me and find security and rest. God is like a father that instead of speaking down to the crying child, he gets on his knees and while wiping their tears away, he says, it's all going to be okay. God speaks in this way so that we would understand and find comfort to know that in this fallen world, everything is going to be okay. That's why the psalmist says in verse 5, you will not fear. What will we not fear? He says, the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. God's protection covers us from the dangers from without and the fear from within. He says, "If you take refuge in God, there's no need to fear what you what you can see and what you cannot see." For being honest today, sometimes the scariest things in life are the things that we cannot see. The what ifs and the unknowns of life can be terrifying. It reminds me of this: when I was in high school, I was a church janitor, and I absolutely hated that job uh, because it was a big old church building. And Sunday nights, I would have to go into the building and clean up the children's ministry department, and I was terrified. There's nothing scarier than being in a big old church by yourself on a Sunday night. I'm telling you, it's terrifying. And some of you laugh, but you know the experience. You walk into your house in the middle of the day by yourself, and you have no fear because the lights, you see the light, the natural light. But you walk into your house at night all alone, and there's no lights at all. That can be a terrifying thing. What ifs can be paralyzing and devastating. In World War II, Joseph Goebbels was the minister of propaganda in Germany. One of his jobs, one of his main jobs, was to strike Germany's enemy with absolute fear. His job was to terrify them with what-ifs. He once said his main strategy in England was to instill fear at all costs and to lay it on as thick as possible. Hysteria was his aim. And one time he had it falsely reported that the German military found 100,000 British uniforms lying around in Dunkirk, and that soon the German soldiers would put them on and parachute into England. His hope was to strike fear, the fear of what if, in all of his enemies, because he understood that it can be a devastating thing. Here the psalmist says, God is a refuge, so there is no need to fear the what ifs of life. No need to fear the unknown. No need to fear the terror of the night. No need to fear the deadly pestilence or, as he says in verse 6, the pestilence that stalks at night. He says it doesn't matter what stalks at night or struts in the noonday. You need not fear anything with God. Notice he doesn't seek to eliminate the reality of danger. He could have said, hey, because God is your God, there is no danger in the world. That's not true. He doesn't seek to eliminate the reality of danger, but to reassure us in the face of danger. He says you should not be afraid of what you see or or what you you don't see, because it doesn't really matter, because God is a safe refuge. If you'll come to him, you can find protection and life. Brothers and sisters, what are you most afraid of today? What fills your mind with fear? What thought steals sleep from you at night? For those overcome with fear today, a word of encouragement for you. Every danger that you know of, in which God has delivered you from, there's probably a thousand more dangers that God has delivered you from that you know nothing about. There are a thousand things that God is doing in our life, and we're only aware of a few of them. God shields us from the things we cannot see and the things we can see. God's covering is unwavering in the face of visible enemies and enemies that hide. His covering is all-encompassing. Heaven alone will disclose all that God has delivered us from. So when fear tempts you with what-ifs, you need to always respond with I know's. When fear tempts you with what-ifs, always respond with I know's. Because fear might say, hey, there might be danger lurking in the darkness. And you should respond, I know that God says I shall not fear the terror of the night. What if pestilence strikes you in the noonday? I know that God says not even that can harm me. What if the schemes of the wicked, what if they're plotting against you in this life? God says I need not be afraid of even that. For every what if we should respond with I know because God has said it so. God has not left us alone in this world. He has not left us unarmed against our fears. He's given us all that we need to make it to heaven. He's told us how he will handle our enemies in the end. He further drives home the point here. He displays it again. see it in verses 7 and 8. He says, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. He's again just showing us another dimension of it. He's saying, even if thousands were to fall, even if the greatest pestilence and plague strikes this earth, nothing can befall you because God has covered you. You will only look with your eyes and see those who fall who've rejected God. The psalmist is making abundantly clear that there is no safer place, no greater refuge, no better shelter to seek than in God. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying, what shall we say if God be for us? Who can be against us? What disease or danger or devastation can harm those who seek refuge in God? The psalmist says there is none, for all who trust in him will be delivered and protected through the end. Not only does God deliver us by protecting us, he delivers by providing. We see this in verses 9 through 13. There the psalmist says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample under foot. He is saying here, because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall be able to come near your tent. Why? We see in verses 11 through 12, here's the reason he says, for he commands his angels concerning you to guard you in all your way. On all, and he says, on their hands, they will bear you up. So he further See, the extent of God's shielding and covering, the the evil and the plagues of this life can harm no one that take refuge in God because God provides everything they need in this life to, to guard them and protect them on every side. This is a wonderful picture of God's care that He provides for His people. There's probably no more beautiful and thorough description in all the Psalms of what God does for those who take refuge in Him. For some this morning, Psalm 91 is a balm to a wounded soul a much needed encouragement and there's others today that psalm 91 is not a bomb but a burden to you it could not feel further from the truth you feel overcome by the schemes and plots of the wicked you feel overwhelmed by the terror of the night and you don't feel like you've been delivered from evil but devastated by it how do we read and understand psalm 91 when it couldn't feel further from the truth I think there's two ways to read and apply Psalm 91. You ready for it? There's two ways. The first way is you can read and apply Psalm 91 like Satan. I say like Satan because in Matthew 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was being tempted by Satan, Satan misquotes verse 11. His aim was to throw off the Son of God so that the salvation of God's people would fall to ruins. Jesus said, I will not not put God to the test. I will remain faithful in the trial. And right now, many of you feel tempted by Satan. You feel weak and vulnerable. You feel like your life has been extremely hard. You feel as though you've trusted God in all your ways, and yet it feels and seems like all he does is send affliction and trial your way. And if you're not careful in these moments, this is when you're most vulnerable to Satan's temptations. Because Satan will use Psalm 91 not to help you, but to harm you. Satan loves to use the Word of God to undermine the work of God, and he's been doing it since the garden. He would love nothing more today than to take the promises of God and wound your soul with them, to terrorize and mock you and torment you with them. To be very clear today, Psalm 91 isn't promising that if you trust God, and you make him your refuge, you won't experience evil and danger and devastation in this life. That's not saying that. It's a promise that though there is evil and danger and hardship in this life, that God will preserve us in the midst of all those things. That's what Psalm 91 is about. Satan, like the prosperity gospel preachers, loves to use this passage to offer a healthy and wealthy and happy life. But we must understand today that any form of Christianity that preaches and offers an affliction and trial-free life is not Christianity. It is satanic. Amen. It's how Satan would interpret this passage. Well, how do we understand it then? How do we as Christians apply this to our own lives? Well, there's really only one other way to apply it. It's by reading it in light of Jesus. You can either read it like Satan, or you can read it in light of who Jesus is. Because when we read it in light of Jesus, it reminds us that there is only one who ever truly sought refuge in God. There is only one who truly trusted and loved and sought shelter in the Almighty, and it's Jesus. But what was Jesus known as on this earth? A man of sorrows. He was known by being stricken and afflicted by God. He was known as the suffering serpent. How do we make sense of this? Doesn't that seem like we read in a light of Jesus that it's kind of like counter Psalm 91? It sounds like the opposite of Psalm 91. Here's why. Jesus came to suffer so that we no longer would. That's the point here. Jesus came to suffer so that we no longer would because Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the serpent. Sin and suffering and death entered the world. And Jesus Has come to end the works of the serpent. Jesus came to fulfill verse 13, where it says that you will trample the serpent under your feet. He did this by dying in the place of sinners, by taking the good and right judgment that we all deserve on the cross. And he was put in the grave for three days and raised for our justification. And he ascended on high and sits at the right hand of the Father and will one day come to judge the living and the dead. And all who now repent and believe in him can truly take refuge in God and take shelter in the shadow of the Almighty, not only now, but for all eternity. And it means that these promises in Psalm 91 are not just a hopeful thing we wish for, but a certainty, We must read these in light of Jesus to make sense of what God has done for us in Christ. Because of Jesus, we may encounter the evil of this world, but we will never be overcome by it. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because Jesus is with us. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we can know that all the hardships and trials in this life are for our good. And everything that we experience in this life must work out for our salvation. Because of Jesus, Psalm 91 isn't a maybe for the Christian, but a certainty. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on verse 10 where the psalmist says that no evil will befall you, says this. And it's a block quote, so bear with me. But it's Spurgeon, so you'll be just fine. That's what Spurgeon says. It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is not ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine, reproach his honor, death his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who is in such case. He is secure where others are in peril. He lives where others die. The life of the Christian may be heaven heavy, but the burden will be lifted soon. We may be bruised by evil in this life, but we will all be healed on Resurrection Day. What is God for his people? He is a deliverer. He delivers us by protecting us from the schemes of the enemy, by guarding us through the midst of pestilence and plague, and he provides all that we need to make it to heaven and to be with him for all eternity. And lastly, not only is God a deliverer for his people, not only is he a shelter, but he is also salvation. Final, my final point is God is salvation. See this in verses 14 through 16. So the entire psalm here in the first 13 voices, we're hearing the psalmist speak. And now God speaks up. Listen to what he says in verses 13. Excuse me, verses 14 through 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This section here is really a summary of the entire psalm. And yet it's God who speaks up. So we should all definitely listen. He says this, because you've held fast to me, I hold fast to you. It's interesting that God says because he holds fast to me. In salvation, who approached who? God or man? It's like this, I love to sit with older couples who've been married a really long time, and I love to ask them how they met. And I love in particular when the man tells the story, because it's always exciting and partly false. Laughter typically he'll tell it in grandiose detail and say something to the fact of and she couldn't keep her eyes off of me or she she wouldn't stay away from me and he says it with a smile because he knows it's false <laughs> he knows he pursued her brothers and sisters in salvation there's no doubt about it god pursued us we were dead in our sins But God is rich in mercy and he made us alive together with Christ. It doesn't mean we don't respond because we do. But God is the one who did the initiating. He is the one who provided what we need to be made right with him. We owed a debt to God and he gave us the money to pay him back. Richard Sibbs says of the gospel, God knows we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requires no more than he gives. But he gives what he requires, and he accepts what he gives. Salvation is all of God, and it is all of grace. When we get to heaven, there will be none of us who brag about how we got ourselves there. We will all be bowing before the Lamb of God and saying, He is the one who delivered us from the evil and the wickedness of this world. He is the one who held fast to us. It's amazing how God affirms us as the one holding fast to him, when in reality, he's holding fast to us. But look here, he makes all these promises. God makes all these promises to those who trust in him and who come to him for refuge. You just look down throughout, you can see it. He says this, I will deliver him. I will protect him. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. I will satisfy him with long life and show him my salvation. What is God saying here? He is saying that those who rejected themselves, who turned from themselves, who turned from the counsel of the wicked and sought refuge in me, they will be saved fully and finally. I will bless them with immense blessings and abundant blessings. I will give them all that they need to make it through heaven and to enjoy me for all eternity. And Did you notice the transparency here? How honest God is about our circumstances. He doesn't promise that those who cling to him won't need deliverance or rescue or won't be in trouble. He says the opposite. He says they will need to be delivered, they will need to be rescued, and they will need help in trouble, but I will deliver them, I will rescue them, and I will be with them in the midst of trouble. God has told us in this life you will have tribulation, but in me you have peace, take heart, I have overcome the world. For those here who are feeling beat up in need of deliverance, If you'll cry out to God, He will hear you and answer. He is a promise-keeping God, and He hears the cries of the afflicted. Is there anything that keeps you from crying out to God today for help? Is there anything that keeps you from praying honestly with God? The pastor asked me recently, when's the last time you shook the doors of heaven and pled with God? When's the last time you begged with God based on your circumstances or for your family before others in your life. God says here that he will hear and act for all who cry out to him. Not only that, he he gives us more of a description of the deliverance that he gives to all those who cry out to him. He says he gives to those who cry out to him honor, satisfaction, and salvation. Now I think these are all the same thing, that God rewards those who trust in him with eternal life. I think that's what he's arguing for. I think that's what God is saying to those. That's what we heard earlier in John 10, right? What Sophie read to us, my sheep hear my voice. They know my name. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. The gift that God gives to those who cry out to him is they get to follow Jesus right into eternity. And there they aren't known just as sheep. They are known as children. They are adopted into his family. That's why Paul says in Romans eight sixteen through 7, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What is the inheritance for all those who cry out to God? It is God himself. God is the prize for all who seek refuge in him. The God who is infinite in wisdom and power and goodness and needs nothing and no one, who is self-sufficient and alone-efficient, gives himself to his people to be enjoyed for all eternity. So God gives to those who trust him and love him. God satisfies them with long life. Can you imagine anything more satisfying than being with God for eternity? Here often people talk about their desires to go to heaven. Often it'll be like, well, I want to go see my family members. Or I want to go to a place where I won't experience pain or hardship or sadness anymore. Or I want to experience a place where there's no more sin and death. There's no doubt about it, that heaven is filled with many and wonderful good things. But the crown jewel of heaven is God himself. The reason that heaven is heaven is because God is there. And if your longing for heaven does not have God at the center of it, it might not be heaven you're longing for. God is the glory of heaven. He is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. He says to those who wait for me, to those who trust me, to those who cry out to me, I will satisfy them with long life and I will show them my salvation. Have you considered what that day is going to be like? When you finally see the salvation of God completed in your life? When you finally see the worst parts about you the things that have brought the most grief in your life, when you finally realize that God remembers them no more, that he has casted them behind his back, that there will not be, I told you so, there will be no rubbing your nose in your misery, only welcome and satisfaction for all eternity. Richard Baxter says this of finally seeing our salvation and saints' everlasting rest. He says, How it will fill our souls with perpetual joy to think that in the streams of this blood we have swam through the violence of the world, the snares of Satan, the seductions of the flesh, the curse of the law, the the wrath of an offended God, the accusations of a guilty conscience, the vexing doubts and fears of, of unbelieving hearts, and finally arriving safely at the presence of God. In spite of ourselves, God brings us to himself to be satisfied with long life for all eternity. That's what God gives to those who wait and trust in him. Brothers and sisters, today God promises that those who continue to remain faithful and continue to cry out to him, all the burdens you bear, all the sorrows that fill your heart will one day be replaced with eternal joy. The sorrows and sadness of this life will cease and joy and praise will be your lot for all eternity. He will bring you safely home and Psalm 91 in its fullest will be your experience forever. So what is God for his people? Have you seen that throughout the Psalms this summer? What has God promised to be for his people? He is who he says he is. He is a faithful God who is true to his promise, that will not forget his people, who will not leave them in their suffering and their trials. He is faithful to his promises that he will gather his people from the corners of the earth to be with him for all eternity. There is nothing that this world offers that compares to what God gives his people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you to declare that you are the Most High, you are the Almighty, you are the one who alone is the safe refuge and the secure shelter that we can find life now for all eternity. Father, we pray that as we journey towards heaven, as we wait on you, that we would trust that we should not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved, though they be thrown to the heart of the sea, for you are with us. Father, we pray that we would be a faithful people, that we would love you and trust you and continually seek refuge and help and hope in you. Oh, Father, we pray that you would not lose a a single one as we all journey towards heaven together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.